Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Hosanna! What a wonderful day. And it's been a while, seems like, since we've been able to celebrate it with this kind of joy. I mean, I cut out, I remember cutting out paper palm branches and waving them from my living room at you through Zoom not so long ago. We'll talk about that guy here in a minute. Carson Naylor brought him to me. He said, you can use that in your sermon. Well, this is Palm Sunday, and it's the day that we set aside to uh, remember and rejoice in the king returning to his city, coming in his glory to his city, announcing his kingship to his people. And that appears in every gospel account, where this morning our text is going to be Matthew 21, 1 to 17. If you have a Bible and as you're turning there, let me just say a couple of things first about Holy Week. Holy Week is a week in many church traditions that is set aside for remembering the final acts, the final deeds of Jesus Christ, all the things surrounding his death and burial. Why do we call it holy? Is it because it's any more holy than any other week? You know, Scripture doesn't even command us to observe a holy week in the New Testament or Easter, or Good Friday, or Maundy Thursday, for that matter. These are not things commanded by God. And so some people would ask, well, if it's not commanded by God, why should we do it? How, on what basis, by what right do we do such a thing? Well, we observe Holy Week because we agree with those in church history who have thought it helpful to the church to return year after year to those final deeds of Jesus same thing with Christmas, his coming into the world. Uh, We celebrate that at Christmas and it's good to remember it year after year. And his, the final acts and what happened in that final week of Jesus' life is Jesus laid the foundation stones upon which our faith is built. That's what Jesus did for us in the final week of his life. He laid the very foundation of our faith through his death, burial, and resurrection. And just like it's always, foundation stones are like the basics. And it's always good to come back to basics. And it's good to come back to Jesus. And we come into his final deeds. We call it holy, not because this Sunday gets you extra points for attendance. You don't get extra points for being here or on Easter. It's not more holy. And it doesn't accrue holiness to you by being there. It's holy because Jesus is holy. That's why we call it, some people call it Passion Week, but passion's such an awfully abused word that I can't bring myself to call it Passion Week. (laughs) It doesn't mean what we think it means anymore. So we call it Holy Week, and we call it holy because Jesus is holy, and he did some amazing and mighty things for us in the final days of his life. The setting for those final acts and deeds of Jesus was the holy city Jerusalem and Palm Sunday marks his final trip there. A trip that he knew was the end of his earthly life and ministry. His time had come and he knew it 
and he came and he did his work. Very hard work, awful work, mighty work that Jesus did. We're going to look at this, what happened as he comes into the city, how he came, how people responded, and the things that he began to do. Let's look together at Matthew 21, 1 to 17. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into this village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is an incredible account. A wonderful thing, a wonderful episode. And one of the great things about observing Holy Week is for the preacher... When you come back to texts like this, you don't feel like you have to get it all in. You don't have to draw it all out. Some other guy next year, maybe me, has an opportunity to say all the other things that can be said from a wonderfully rich passage like this one. But today I want to talk about three things. And kids, I especially want to talk to you. So I want you to pay close attention. There's a lot about this passage that has to do with children and a lot that the passage has to say to children. Today I want to talk about three things, donkeys, prophets, and children. Donkeys, prophets, and children. Let's first talk about donkeys. Donkeys feature prominently in this account. 
they're not like incidental characters or side characters. They're like front and center. And they're not accidentally there. Jesus very intentionally brings donkeys into this situation. They were not going to be there. Jesus sought them out and made sure that they were a part of what was happening here, part of the action. And he's very particular in the choice of a donkey. He wants a donkey that has a colt. By colt, that probably means up to four, it could be anywhere up to four years old. So it, it's like, it could look like a mature donkey, but it it's, it's probably means it's fresh. He's looking for a fresh donkey that's not been used by anybody else, special for him. And he's the only one who's going to get a donkey. He doesn't get a donkey for anybody else, just for himself. And he rides into town on it. Now, we conclude from this that Jesus is communicating something. He's sending a signal. He's making a statement. What is the statement that Jesus is making? Well, we normally, I think, think and assume that Jesus is making a state, like a humble sort of statement. Look how lowly I am. I will ride a humble beast into town. We think this, I think, because donkeys for us are silly. They're, they're like ridiculous sorts of creatures. Now, this is a pretty well-proportioned donkey here. I like it. It's sort of horse-like, almost. But don't, I, I, was, I drive to, to uh, Ellettsville to take some kids to school every morning, and I, I pass this field that has one of those little burrows, probably a miniature donkey or something in it, and it, they're just ridiculous. <laughs> this donkey belonged to Bob Kaplowitz, and Carson Naylor has the honor of of inheriting it from Bob, who passed away, our dear brother. Bob, every Christmas, would give Pastor Bailey a calendar with pictures of donkeys every month. Why would Bob Kaplowitz give Pastor Bailey a picture or calendar of donkeys? I have a theory. (laughs) My theory is that donkeys like to make silly noises. And Pastor Bailey also likes to make silly sounds with his mouth. That's my theory. But donkeys are silly. Kind of, kind of, I don't know, comic characters in our view today. That's not how people saw them back in those days. To them, they were tools. They were cars. And it was in a day when not very many people could afford a car. So they were like a luxury item, which meant they were for important people and for kings. And particularly for kings in times of peace, they were like their go-to car to get around places. And we know this from Scripture. And there's a long history to it through Scripture that's very significant to understanding what's being communicated here by Jesus as he very intentionally gets on a donkey and comes into town. All the way back in Genesis chapter 49, we begin to see the, the, significance, of, the significance of donkeys and the connection with kings. In Genesis chapter 49, Jacob who's also named Israel, got his, gathered his 12 sons around him and he prophesied over each son. Here's what he said over his son Judah. 
Judah would give birth to the line of kings. They would come from him, including David, Solomon, and Jesus. They would be of the house of Judah. Listen to this prophecy. It's older than Zechariah's prophecy, but very similar. It says in Genesis 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is a word that means peace. Until peace comes, Judah will have the rule. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Isn't that amazing? He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. Signs of of luxury and wealth attend this king and the rule of Judah. So that's where it starts, this connection between donkeys and kings. And it continues. You remember when Saul, Israel's first king, by their choice, when he's, he's about to become king, you know what he's doing? He's looking for his father's donkeys. Not accidental, I think, on the part of the author of Samuel, who then moves on to point out in 2 Samuel that David, with all his household, rode donkeys. Solomon, when he's becoming king, they've chosen David's successor, Solomon, to follow after him and become the new king. To get him from there to his coronation service, they mount him on the king's mule. So there's a very strong connection throughout scripture made between kings and particularly kings in peacetime and peaceful situations and joyful occasions and donkeys. And building on this, the prophet Zechariah, much later, looks ahead with his prophetic eye into the future and sees the Messiah and the, and the king coming to Jerusalem. And he says the, this, these words, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And he goes on and says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's the prophecy quoted as being fulfilled, quoted in our passage as being fulfilled by the Lord Jesus on this great day. And so Jesus was, by getting on a donkey, very intentionally, and coming into town, he was announcing to everybody, I am the one that the prophets and the scriptures have spoken of. I am that king. I am your Messiah. This was not a little self-deprecating, humble statement. Look how lowly I am. Quite the opposite. It is, I am the king. And yet it emphasizes gentleness. And he's, so he's, he's not just saying, I am the king, but I am the king and I come to you in peace. I am here for peace, if you'll have it. 
He knows they won't have it because he's already looked over the city from afar and wept over it, saying, how many times have I wanted to gather you under my wings and you would not. But he comes in peace. That's what this symbolizes, the king who comes in peace. And the people that are surrounding Jesus at this time seem to get it very clearly. That's what gets them all excited. They're very happy and thrilled. Jesus, without saying any words, communicates to them all what's going on and the significance of it just by getting on that donkey and coming into town. And they know what it means and we, the evidence of that is in their words and it's in their actions. What do they start doing? They start treating him like a king. They put their, first of all, their, their own coats on the back of the donkey. Donkeys, horses, they get sweaty and they get you dirty if you don't have a saddle or some covering. So they don't want Jesus being dirty. They put their coats on the back of the donkey. And then they start taking their coats off and putting them on the road in front of the donkey. They don't even want the donkey's feet to get dirty. They want to show him, they roll out the red carpet, their own coats from, the back, from their backs to show Jesus honor as a king. And they cut off branches and they wave them and they shout what? Hosanna! Children, what does Hosanna mean? Yes, save us, but it really means save us, Lord. Lord, save us. And what does Lord mean? King. King, save us. They understand what's being communicated. They get the message and it gets them thrilled because finally their king, the promised one has come and he's finally acting like it. <laughs> They've been thinking this was him. They've been hoping it was him and now finally he's decided to, to get on that horse or that donkey and come into town and announce his kingship and so they're thrilled. They're super excited. Jesus came to bring peace and he announced peace to the city. But interestingly, there would not be very much peace in Jerusalem that week or for a long time after. It's interesting to think how there's not very much peace in Jerusalem still. So did Jesus fail to bring peace to Jerusalem? No. The problem is they all hoped that he was there to bring political peace and to throw off Roman rule and all kinds of other oppressors. But Jesus was there for a different kind of peace. He was there to establish a spiritual peace between a wicked, offensive race of men and a holy, righteous God who is justly offended and wrathful and full of vengeance against sinners. That's the peace Jesus came with, came to establish. That's the work he gave himself to. He came to bring spiritual peace. Now listen to this. In order for Jesus to establish spiritual peace between holy man and sin, or sinful man and holy God, in order for him to do that, a suitable sacrifice would have to be offered. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. It's sins that has to be dealt with. 
So a suitable sacrifice had to be offered. Jesus was himself that suitable sacrifice. And so he came to offer willingly himself. In order for, to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin, he would have to die. Now in order for Jesus to die, somebody would have to kill him. In order for somebody to kill him, they would have to come up with some just or suitable reason to kill him. And the problem is, you can't come up with a reason to kill Jesus Christ. Not that's just or righteous. Because Jesus never sinned one time and was not guilty of one violation or infraction of any law. He never failed to love fully any man. He was holy and pure and righteous and good and perfect. Which is what made him a suitable sacrifice to begin with. So here's the problem, here's the dilemma, I guess, you might feel. How is somebody going to come up with a reason to kill Jesus? Well, they can't come up with a good reason, so they have to invent bad ones or false reasons. Why would they do that? There's a lot of people that seem to hate Jesus, especially here in this last week. Why do they hate Jesus? Well, they they hate Jesus because he's good. Isn't that interesting? We're so twisted and corrupt that the badness in us, the sin in us, resents and gets irritated at and is envious of and hates the righteousness in Jesus. Better... A better way of putting it is Jesus in his righteousness, when it, his righteousness reveals in us or exposes in us our sin, we get mad at him. We get mad at his holiness, which exposes our sin. Look in verse 15 of our passage. When the chief priests and the scribes, it says, saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. It was the wonderful things that Jesus had done that led to their hatred of him, their anger, their resentment of Jesus. It's the good things in Jesus that irritated them. Now, that's a good thing to keep in mind as we go in now to the second thing I want to talk about. The first thing we talked about was donkeys. And when we think of donkeys now, we want to think of kings. Kings coming in peace, okay? Now let's talk about prophets. Jesus is called in this passage by the crowds, the prophet Jesus from Galilee. They call him a prophet. There were three primary offices in the Old Testament. Three important, most important positions in the government, in the, in the religious order of God's people in the Old Testament. Does any child here, kid, know what they were? Three offices, yes? King, priest, and prophet. Excellent. 
right on. Jesus fulfilled all of those roles and offices for his people. He fulfilled them. And we see him especially fulfilling them here in this last week of his life. Where do we see him fulfilling the role of a king? Well, getting on the donkey and announcing his kingship. Here he comes into town. Remember how he's crucified and the message over his head? Behold, the king of the Jews. Where do we see him fulfilling the office of priest for us in this last week? On Maundy Thursday, we're going to commemorate and remember the things that Jesus did on that night in which he was betrayed. And one of the things that he does at length in the Gospel of John is he prays for the church, for his people, that we would be one. That's what a priest does. The priest prays and intercedes for the people. What else does a priest do? The priest offers sacrifices. Jesus is the Lamb of God and he comes to offer himself. So when he was crucified on the cross on Good Friday, we see him in his office of priesthood for us. Where do we see him being a prophet? Carson Naylor got this in the first service. Any other kid want to give it a try? Where do we see Jesus acting as a prophet? In the temple. He comes into town and what does he do? He goes to the temple and he, he acts the prophet and he speaks the prophet. What does a prophet do? It's probably hackneyed, but prophets foretell and prophets forthtell. Very similar words. The extraordinary, less common part of the prophetic ministry and office was to foretell and to look into the future and to accurately predict things that are going to happen. That's part of a prophet's work. But the normal, everyday work of the prophet was to foretell. And that means to declare God's message to be God's message bearer, to speak for God, to speak out for God. And that's what Jesus does by his actions and by his words. He goes in the temple, he sees God's house being abused, and he, he starts speaking for God. <laughs> he's, get out of here! And then he tells them why he's doing it. God has written, it, it is written, the Lord has spoken, my house shall be a house of prayer, and you're making it a den of thieves, a robber's den. That's Jesus acting the prophet. And that's just the beginning of Jesus the prophet in this final week of his life. And you should read about it. It's this part of Jesus' life and ministry that is most skipped over and not thought about and not appreciated. Jesus was a prophet for you. And it's hard work to be a prophet. It's thankless work to be a prophet. People get mad when you speak for God. Because when you speak for God, you're pointing out sin and error. You're speaking of judgment and hell. You're warning people. And people don't like that. It's very hard to accept. Jesus is a prophet. You should go home this week in preparation for Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and you should read with your families from 20, 
chapter 21 of Matthew, this is starting with the temple, to 26.1. Read those chapters. Read him telling these very intense parables. Read him calling out with devastating clarity the sins of the Pharisees, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in chapter 23. And it just goes on and on and on. Jesus is a prophet. And he's set, what, is, what is a prophet's goal when they come into, when they're, when they're speaking out for God? What's their goal? Repentance is their goal. Bringing about change of heart, change of attitude, change of action. Repentance is their goal. So Jesus, is when he's speaking out against sin and corruption and trying to clean up God's house and God's people, is loving us. So would you love Jesus for it? Love him for being a prophet to us. You know his words to this very day, spoken in that final week, speak still and cut still, and they produce repentance and have done in you. So love him for it. Honor him for it. This is the least popular aspect of Jesus' character. So let, let's honor him for his role as a prophet. And you know the best way to honor him for his work of a prophet is to honor the people around you that take after him and give themselves to that hard work. It is hard work. It's a dirty job that has to be done, pointing out sin. So if there's somebody in your life who's good at it, honor them and thank them, love them for it. If It's not a failure to have people get mad at you when you speak for God. That's something that happens. Happened to Jesus. And he says, you know what? It's going to happen to you too. A servant or a slave is not better than his master. So if we see a slave trying to emulate his master, speaking out for God, let's love that man. Let's love that woman. Let's support them and honor them. It's hard work, and they're not going to get a lot of thanks if they don't get it from you. So be that encouragement that they need. Last thing I want to talk about is children. We've talked about donkeys, which means king. We've talked about prophets and Jesus acting as our prophet, fulfilling that office for us. And now I want to talk about children. The people most conspicuously not offended by Jesus in this account are children. And we see that in verse 15. Earlier in the passage, it's talked about crowds, and the crowds are shouting such and such. Later, that's repeated, but at that point, it's only children who are said to be shouting those words, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes. It's only children. It's, the Holy Spirit explicitly says, it's children in the temple, which means that this is during or after or surrounding the time when Jesus is in the temple doing his prophet thing. And it's children who are 
continuing to praise him for it. Now, children are like this. They do not take offense at God. Adults take offense at God. But children very rarely do. Do you remember that totally horrible and inane kids show, Barney? My friend Aaron Jones, many years ago now, said once to me a pretty profound thing about Barney. He said, you know, adults made that show for kids. Kids didn't make that for themselves. Kids would never make something so stupid, so much without any edge or danger. Kids would never make something so inane and ridiculous. Only adult, adults trying, looking down their noses on children and, and being patronizing and, telling, and thinking what children really need would make something so stupid as that. You know, what I think about, though, when I think about these kids not taking offense at Jesus is I think about all the Bible storybooks and lots of Sunday school curriculum that I've grown up with in my life and been taught, and how unfull a picture of Jesus it presents, how much it's prettied up. You know what, I was, real, I was looking through Bible story picture books this morning in my home. We've got a number of them. I don't mind them. They're helpful. We use them. You know the worst thing about them is not the pictures of Jesus. There's a lot to complain about with pictures of Jesus. What's the, the worst thing, in my opinion, is what's not said about Jesus that the Bible says. All the missing details. My family got to go some years ago to the Sight and Sound Theater in Branson, Missouri, and they put on Bible pageants, grand scale, live animals, technology. Everywhere you look, it's amazing. We saw Samson. Later, we've watched it on like video of Jonah, and uh, Esther, we saw Esther. They're pretty fantastic, but you know what? And they do a good job of presenting the gospel and all these presentations, they're Christian. They do a good job, but they leave out details and you can pretty much guess what details they leave out. Children can handle the truth better than you can. And the, 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 the things that are absent, missing from Bible picture books, from pageants and stories about Jesus and Sunday school curricula says a lot more about you and me than it does about children. What makes us squeamish and uncomfortable? That's what it communicates. There's a record all through the church of what the church does not approve of about Jesus by what it doesn't teach about Jesus to, kill, to kids. But you know what? The children are the ones who love the Psalms project most. And you know the book of Psalms is filled with some of the greatest challenges to our faith that the thing we would never in a million years think we could say those things to God or should think them about God. And they're a real challenge when, it, when it's our turn to sing them in worship. We've had to feel that challenge. Wait, am I allowed to? Should I? I mean, okay, it's in the Bible. Huh. 
But the kids just love it. You know why they love it? Because they want a God that is both dangerous and good. It makes them feel safe. It makes them love him. And we, we're uncomfortable giving them a God who's dangerous. Don't hide God's judgment, God's acts, God's reasons for acting that way or speaking that way, his words. Don't hide them from your children. If you give them a full picture of Jesus, they'll grow up happier and better adjusted and loving God more. It's just in their it's in their nature. They hunger for, to know God as their father. And God as their father is a, is a God who is dangerous and good. I'm, I'm having to decide if I want to read to you some excerpts from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis gets children a lot better than most of us do. And when he writes stories for kids that are allegorical... He, portray, he does a better job in just a couple of little excerpts of portraying the real Jesus and the feel of him and the attitude of him than we do as Bible teachers of children. You all, a lot of you know the example from the beaver's house in The Lion, Rich, and the Wardrobe when the question is somebody says, well, he's a lion. And Susan says, oh, I didn't know he was a lion. I, I'm not sure what I think about that. This is my paraphrase, but the, is he safe? Is ultimate, in the end the question. I don't know how I'll feel when I meet a real lion. Is he safe? And, and the beaver responds, oh no, goodness no, he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? There's a much better passage than that even though in the silver chair at the beginning of the silver chair. And there's Jill, this girl who's desperately thirsty. She finds a stream, and on the other side of the stream is this lion, who she doesn't know is Aslan, but he's Aslan, and he's just sitting there calmly, waiting, watching. And she's so driven by her thirst that she's, sitting, she's just stuck. I don't know what to do. And Aslan says, suddenly speaks, and startles her, and they end up having a conversation. I am going to read it to you. Are you thirsty, says the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? She said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, 
kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Kids want that. That's him teaching them about Jesus. And that is so spot on. Parents, give your children the gift of weight. Give them the dignity that, of being people with a mind and a heart and a will and a desire for good things. And don't be ashamed of Jesus. Give, them, give it to them. Give him to them. Uh, children, last thing I want to speak finally to you about children in this passage. It is clear from this passage that Jesus loves your praises. He loves your praises. He defends your praises from people who want them to stop. He defends them by quoting the Old Testament scriptures. He says, have you men never read that out of the mouths of babes and infants, God has ordained praise for himself? Does any child here know what he's quoting? Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. You know what book of the Bible he's quoting from? Levi? The Psalms. Anybody know which Psalm he's quoting? Psalm 8. That's what he's quoting. One of the ones that we get to sing. Jesus loves the praises of children. He delights in them. The praises of children are very... He does not look down on you as children and think that your praises are not worth his time or attention. Do you remember sometimes his disciples would try to shoo children away because, oh, the master's very busy. He has very busy and important things to do. You need to get out of here. He can't be bothered. And Jesus rebukes them and says, no, 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 no. You bring them right here, right now. And he took them in his lap and he blessed them. And he said to everybody, unless you become like one of these children, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. You have no part in my kingdom unless you're like... So Jesus actually thinks, children, that we adults have a lot to learn from you. You know, one of the things that we've lost as we grew up, and you'll probably lose it too, I'm sad to say, but one of the things we've lost in our growing up is we've lost our self-forgetfulness. We became somewhere along the line, probably judging from my house, around the age of 12. We became self-aware, self-conscious. 
and we've been in bondage and stuck in that ever since and feeling like trapped and we can't break out of it. And sometimes our heart wants to and we just don't, we're afraid, we're so aware of being ridiculous of what people will think of us. It's so oppressive and you children don't even think about that most of the time. God bless you. Now, because of that, you have an important role. You got to help us forget ourselves. You did that this morning. When you came in shouting, we wanted to shout. We felt maybe we were just about safe enough to do it. And some of us did. I did a little. Oh, it's helpful. Children, praise the Lord and lead us in praise. You know, in the time of the Reformation in, in Geneva, that city led by John Calvin, and they were doing hard work trying to reform the church, and they're trying to bring singing back into the congregation, make it the people's work again, and the people don't know the first thing about singing. Somebody told me this week, Josh Congrove told me, that he had a conducting professor who to this day, he's worked in lots of churches, lots of different types of settings, and he said, you know, Dirty little secret is Roman Catholics don't know how to sing. And, and all the students in this class are like, oh, really? And he said, it's been my experience. Protestants know how to sing. You know why they know how to sing? Children. Because the people had never grown up singing and the kids could learn and they were willing and they taught them and then they got the kids and they put them up in front of everybody and they led the church in singing. That's how the church got back its song. Isn't that amazing? Children, worship Jesus. We need you to. Sing for us and lead us in praise. Lift your hands. Uh, down here in the back, as my wife and the kids stayed for the beginning of the second service, because some of the kids were singing, and, and I've seen this on the part of lots of little, little ones in our congregation. Every Sunday morning I see this, but I saw my little girl Mavis, who's like two, in the back holding the donkey like this, going like this, as the kids were singing. Children, you lead us in worship. We need you to do that. Now, last, very last thought. It's a sober thought just to end on for all of us. As we go into the rest of Holy Week, we anticipate Maundy Thursday service and Good Friday. Here's the thought. There's a lot of people on this Palm Sunday excited about Jesus, praising him, calling out Hosanna, claiming him as their king, and by Friday, there's pretty much nobody left. We don't even hear about kids on Friday. In fact, what, the, what, there are people crying out on Friday and what they're crying out is, crucify him! We don't have any king but Caesar, they announce. And his, his own disciples who have been with him for three years are all afraid and they run away and hide. And Peter, the best of the lot, the boldest of the lot. He denies Jesus three times while Jesus is in being, on, put him on trial and falsely accused. A little girl comes up and says, hey, you've been with Jesus, I've seen you. And he says, I don't even know that man. 
there's pretty much nobody left. And here's what I want us to think about. Would we be any different? No. And you know what? Jesus died for that. He died for our embarrassment. He died for our shame. He died knowing who he was dying for. And he knew our nature and our sin. And he loved us. So we don't go into Good Friday proud or smug. We go into Good Friday knowing we would have joined with the crowd crying out against him. The mighty deeds of Jesus were not deeds that we would have loved or appreciated if we saw them firsthand. We would have ended up being at least afraid to own him, embarrassed or ashamed, or even despising and hating him for it. So let's take that home with us. Let's chew on it. Let's come back ready to humbly receive the work of Jesus, the shed blood of Jesus spilled for that kind of awful sin which you and I have if it weren't for God's goodness and the work of his spirit in us. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ, his authority, his prophetic power, and ministry. And we thank you for the example of the children on that day and our children this morning. Oh Lord, I pray that this church would be filled with praise. And thank you that the children lead us in that. And I pray, Lord, that we old fuddy-duddies would willingly follow where the children and their innocence and their faith lead us. Help us to become like them to be humble of heart, to be self-forgetful, and to love you humbly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.